Hi, I'm Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phelan McElhenney. Welcome to the Anna Phelan Scoop. Um, yes. What week, what week is this film? This is about week 47, I believe, of the two-week Flatten the Curve lockdown. So about 11 months. We've Since still the government first started lying to you about this particular uh, virus. Um, so what's on the show today, Anne McElhenney? We have two interviews, actually, two fabulous interviews later on today. And we have a fabulous, a very fabulous yes. um, meatloaf recipe yes. later on. Mm, don't miss that. We're interviewing my journalistic hero, John Nolte of Breitbart, to hear how wokeness has ruined the golden age of television. And uh, basically, actually, how wokeness is the enemy of art. Uh, John is one of the greatest writers writing in America today, so you won't want to miss that. And we have Beth Stelzer, who's a fabulous um, Accident, accidental activist, really. And, yeah, that's exactly right. She's an accidental <laughs> activist. Dedicated, actually, then, to saving women's sport. She's amazing. She's really great from Minnesota, and we look forward to talking to her later and on. And we have, of course, as you mentioned, the recipe We have of the, the recipe day. of the day. And I know I've done, recipe. I've talked to her. I feel like I've talked about meatloaf before. But anyway, this is a meatloaf recipe. One of the reasons, I just realized what the big issue with my meatloaf is, actually. My meatloaf. Do you love me? It has about 3,000 uh, ingredients. See paradise. Oh, that's an exaggeration. Who are you sing? What's the song? See paradise by the dashboard light. I have no idea what the relationship between that and meatloaf is. Oh, I do now. Okay, okay I got it now. Okay, got it. Okay, look at me on the intelligent test. Yes. Um, so, let's go oh, first actually, of first all. all. No, I wanted to, I, I just had to spend a moment with Angria Mitchell. Angria. Yes. Uh, she, uh, last week, Ted Cruz, um, Rightfully, I think, described the impeachment trial as like Shakespeare, full of fury and sound and fury signifying nothing. And uh, Andrea couldn't wait to get in. Andrea, the, for the, any uh, of you who aren't sure who he's talking about, Andrea Mitchell, we yes, call her Andrea. NBC correspondent, you know, uh, she was basically crying the night Trump won. She couldn't wait to get in like a little Karen that she is saying, well, actually, no, said Cruz. That, that quote, full of sound of fury, signifying nothing, that's Faulkner. That's not, that's not Shakespeare, that's Faulkner. No. Well, no. So, so and, Andrea, Angria. Angria. Let me tell you. So, Shakespeare is full of cliches, right? Go on. So, that, if you, sorry, if you ever read Shakespeare, you'll discover he's full of cliches. Only they're not cliches. They're actually phrases that Shakespeare invented. invented. And yes. now they're used so much they've become a yeah. cliche. Winter of discontent, to be or not to be, all the world's a stage. Is this a dagger? The lady doth protest, beware of the eyes of March. All that glitters is not gold. Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. A yes. horse, a horse, a kingdom, my all, kingdom for a horse. He, uh, uh, heavy is the he head that carries the crown. All that, right? So Andrea. Angria. Angria. That's why Mr. Faulkner used. Let's back, you see, back Andrea. Back when America was really racist, when Democrats were really racist and run the South, back then, in this really racist backward country, kids at school learned Shakespeare. Hmm. They didn't do like you did, went to an Ivy League college to not learn Shakespeare. Now, Andrea Angria has been around for a while, Phelan, now. I think she obviously oh. has maybe been around long enough in a kind of a Joe Biden sense that she may have forgotten her Shakespeare. Yes. Bum, bum. Yeah. Maybe those Ivy League colleges were so woke back then that they, you know, that they, that they were getting because Shakespeare's a white male. That's they had anyway. White male. What's really nice, I believe, Phelan, is it true to say that Angria got a lot of people teaching her about Shakespeare yes. after that. Yes. But how smug of her, by the way, to dismiss someone like Ted Cruz, who, by the way, you know, whatever else you can say about Ted Cruz, 
He's very bookish. Yes. And I've met him myself and, and had many's, many's the evening. Uh, many's of, a late night. Many's a late night. Not discussing books. Not discussing books, having plenty of nice alcohol with him. But, uh, but, te- but Ted Cruz is very, very bookish. Yes, I mean, in fact. Famously, you get, you he get famously s- knows the, the how to recite the U.S. Constitution. Backwards or something. By heart. Yeah, but I mean, in fact, you could say to a fault, Ted Cruz is bookish. He may be too bookish Indeed. for his own good uh, in this modern world. Anyway, we're ready so to go to our first interview, I first think. First interview, yes. We're going to John Nolte. As I said, my fa- favourite journalist working in America today. We know John, John, we know John forever. John from Breitbart.com to talk about death of great TV and death of art. Let's go over to that interview now that we recorded just before we came on air. We're joined now by uh, my, one of my favourite writers, John Nolte of Breitbart. Um, his official title is Senior Writer at Breitbart. Um, Which has got nothing to do with his age. It's a, got to do, uh, no. It could have something to do with my age. I would describe John, though, as the soul of Breitbart. Um, the, there's one writer who really uh, encapsulates what Breitbart, what Andrew Breitbart wanted to set up. Um, and I think you're not Breitbart employee number one. You're probably, are you Breitbart employee number two, or was it John? Yeah, number two. Alex Marlowe was yeah. the first hire. I was the second hire. And thank you for the kind words. I appreciate it. No, no, I, I mean it. I mean, I remember sitting in a friend's kitchen uh, when we first came to LA, uh, and there was this guy called Andrew Breitbart. We were screening our documentary. Uh, this guy, Andrew Breitbart, telling me about this idea to set up his own website called Breitbart, right? I mean, what a what a what a narcissist! What an idiot, right? <laughs> Set up his own website. Well, actually, he was saying everyone says I should call it Breitbart because Drudge is Drudge, and you should call it after your name. And I, I was going, yeah, you know, why don't you just call it, you know, the the the, the truth or something like that? And he goes, no, no, everyone else is saying I should call it Breitbart. And he was telling me about this, and he and he I, I, he was going to employ this guy called John Nolte. Uh, who is a was a great writer, and he wa- and he was correct in that, and he was correct in so many other things. I think uh, you and I are are genuine old friends of Andrew, um, and we miss him. I'm sure you miss him every day, and still miss him, and still, miss him and still would love his fun and his joy and his politics uh, to this day. The fun that he would have today, it would be. It's, it's a huge loss to, to us. It's a huge loss to the conservative movement. And it's a huge loss to America as well. I think about it all the time. I always wonder how he would react to something, especially since his, he was always so counterintuitive. He would zig. You expected him to zag. And then you'd yeah. find out he was right. He'd do something. You'd think, what is he doing? Yeah. And then you'd find out that he'd, that he'd made the right move. And yeah. that's, I, I miss that too. And I just miss talking to him. We, we all got those phone calls. And yeah. I miss his fight. And... You just wonder what 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 his reaction would be, how you know how different things would be. Funny, you should say that he always did what we didn't expect him to do, and we all we thought that's a bit much, Andrew. And it turns out he was right. I think the last time I had a, I met, I actually met Andrew or had a full conversation with him was over in his offices over there in is it West LA over by the four hundred five, and mm. uh, yeah. and uh, he he was it was after his not it was quite a while, but just after his. Uh, you're raping people at the Occupy Wall Street gang, right? And, and and it was uh, and it was condemned as this Andrew Breitbart going mad, Andrew Breitbart drunk. There he was standing there with a glass of wine, shouting at the Occupy Wall Street people, "You're raping people! You're raping people!" But then what it forced uh, the media to do, CNN, MSNBC, say, 
Well, we're not actually ripping that people that much. Yeah, not that much. Just yeah. a little bit of rape. Yeah, so, uh, the beginning of the end of that movement was was him standing up there. He's just yelling, "Stop raping people!" Yeah, and we all thought he was crazy. We, we were sitting at, "What is he doing? Why is he doing this?" And then he called me up and he said, "Well, this is why I did it." I thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm never going to doubt this guy again." Well, I mean, then when we left the office, you were sitting at your computer and you and him had that very conversation. He was going, you thought I was mad, didn't you? And you go, you know, yeah, I thought you were mad. And, and I wasn't. Was I? And, and, and yep. so that was, you know, you know, I just would love Andrew to be out there shouting stop at all the madness now and to force the media to, to address that. Um, I should say, by the way, I just should say welcome, by the way, John, to our podcast little bit late in the conversation to say that, but oh, yes. welcome. Uh, oh, thank you, thank you for having me. John is is a great, great writer, and uh, if, if you know when I become a media mogul, John will be number one on my head hunting list of great writers. <laughs> he just brings, uh, he's fearless actually, and um, it's it's a great quality in someone, and you can see it in his writing. Um, the reason that I wanted to talk to John this particular uh, this particular time was. An article he wrote recently, uh, how called how how woke killed the golden age of television, mm-hmm. and it's 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 very pertinent for its time uh, because you know any of you who who read the, the media you know critics uh, would have seen that we had this golden age of television in the seventies and eighties and even the nineties to a certain extent. Television, no no movie star would go into television because it was seen as as, as less quality, the death of your career. Then quality TV started, I suppose with HBO and other places. And, and then you had, uh, you had uh, shows like The Sopranos. Uh, Mad Men. Mad Men, um, 24. Just complete appointment quality, gripping television, a movie a week, basically. And that, there is no more quality television like that now and John's thesis is and I think it's true is that wokeism has killed the quality TV because one thing these these wonderful series most definitely were not was woke so you started off in your piece talking about the crown I mean we felt that as well if the last season had degenerated Uh, tell us tell us about your piece what prompted your piece and let's start talking about the crown I was watching. Uh, my wife and I were, re, were were rewatching some of some of our the older shows. What I guess what are now considered older shows, like Mad Men, and it's in this woke era now. You know, now that the Hitler Youth have taken over the media and entertainment, and and and, and you got this woke era now. When you watch these shows, you know, not even a decade old, you you yeah. keep thinking to yourself, well, they couldn't do that now. That's not something they could get away with now because they'd be they'd be attacked as being racist or they'd be blacklisted or there's too many white people or there's not enough gay people or they just use the wrong word or they tell the wrong joke. And I don't know how familiar you all are with Mad Men, but just think of there's a character in that show, Roger Slater. He's just hilarious. And he says all these inappropriate things about everyone. And you're on the floor. And even when he's joking about you, you know, maybe what you believe in or what you stand for, you still laugh. And that's healthy because nothing's healthier for a society than, than our ability to laugh at ourselves. And I go through and I like TV. I like great TV. I'm not, I, I, I uh, stream Netflix. I have HBO Max. I have uh, Amazon, Roku. And I like great TV. And 
So I'm always looking for, and you just can't find anything anymore because it just degenerates. Instead of being thematically driven, it becomes a lecture. Yeah. It, you know, they have to lecture you about how wrong this is or how wrong that is. And the characters aren't characters. They're just people that are preening and virtue signaling. It is just terrible, terrible art. And you, you don't like the people. You don't like anyone who lectures you. There's too many what they call Mary Sue's, too many perfect people. Um, so you can't like a perfect person because perfect people are annoying. And there's also what I call the narcissism of pettiness, where somebody in a some character will say something, they'll use the wrong pronoun, or they'll they'll just say something that's uh, the, the movie Captain Marvel is a good example where where Sam, uh, Sam Jackson's character called another character a young lady, and she just ripped him a new one <laughs> over, over, young, over calling him a young lady. And that's just the narcissism of pettiness where they can't let anything go. And it's, it's just, it's too hard to watch. And also, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, although I've said it before, there's too much homosexuality on TV now. And I'm just, I don't have anything against gays on TV. I don't have anything against gay. There's a great, there's two great, gay characters on Mad Men um, that I thought the stories were handled just perfectly, just beautifully. But now it's, you know, I'm a heterosexual and I'm very uncomfortable watching two men get affectionate with one another. And, you know, as, as, uh, as, 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 as they say on the left, I was born this way. There's nothing I can do about it. So there's just too much of that. I can't watch some of these shows because it's just in your face all the time and it makes me uncomfortable. And I can't think of a great show that's come out in a long time. And it's too bad because we had a true golden age. I, before I came on, I, I watched some of the clips of Mad Men, that we, you know. And, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. When we, used, when we used to watch Mad Men, we would, like, re-quote scenes over and over again. And I think one of the scenes that you're talking about, Phil, and I don't know if we can watch it now, is that, is that fantastic scene when what's her name the girl Peggy when Peggy Peggy has done something she's not long in the in the business and she's done something and she's given the idea to to the main guy and he's won a prize or whatever and she comes in and says to him you, well you never thank me you know yeah, you, you, never you, take, you take my credit you take right credit. I remember that and, yes. never thank thank and he and goes he, he does this he gives this magnificent speech absolutely magnificent speech and I have to say we use it as a line here to each other it's like that's what, which is the line, you know, that's what the money's for. Yeah, he says, you should thank every day that I'm here. You're in two years. Every day is, is a wonderful opportunity for you to learn. He didn't treat her like a snowflake. And she flourished. And it's, that's another reason it's a great show is that you watch her. And she's horribly imperfect. She makes a lot of mistakes. She's not, a, she's not always a nice person. She's very far from a Mary Sue. But the toughness. The fact that she was treated like a man, where they said, you need to make this on your own. And she, she became exactly what she wanted to become. Yeah. And it was a, a, it was a great lesson. And nowadays, I mean, you, you would be told that Don Draper needs to be canceled. Yeah. And the show needs to be canceled. And the showrunners need to be canceled because blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's very sad because it's, it's, everything woke is anti-art because it's anti-human nature. Everything, everything woke is, it just... It violates human nature. You know, we're, we're supposed to believe that men can magically transform into women and we're supposed to worry about pronouns and we can't laugh at things that are actually funny. Yeah. And we're supposed to accept lectures as opposed to themes. And I, I remember we were what my wife was watching a show on Netflix and this waitress, I don't know what the show was, but this waitress 
uh, went up to an Asian couple. Two guys are sitting there eating. And she said something like, well, we could make you something special like rice or something. And the guy just got in her face. He just, this very rehearsed lecture yeah. about the history of Chinese-American oppression. <laughs> it was so obnoxious. Yeah. And then they made the waitress so obnoxious. And all reality broke down. It just wasn't a real scene because it wasn't, it wasn't about character, it wasn't about stories, it was about lecturing the audience. Well, here's an opportunity to not only make fun of the white working class, but to, but to lecture the audience on Chinese American racism or whatever. And you compare that to a movie like Five Easy Pieces, where Jack Nicholson dresses down a waitress because she won't give him wheat toast. And it's a famous scene. And, and he, he figures out a way that he can get wheat toast if he orders chicken salad and, or chicken sandwich and then just remove the chicken and the, and the mayonnaise. And then he loses his temper at the end and he swipes everything off the table. I mean, that was totally, that was art because he was imperfect. He lost his temper. It was art because they weren't attacking the white working class. They weren't attacking anyone. Yeah. It, was a, it, was a, it was a statement about the stupidity of stupid rules, about rules in general. And it's just, it's just night and day. And woke, that's why I say woke is anti-art. It's just too fake. It's too unrealistic. You talked about The Crown as well. Um, the early seasons were, were fabulous. It was beautifully done. But you, in your piece, you said, you know, it was deeply unfair, you know, and gossipy. It had turned into in this. The, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, had a, a dishonest attack on Margaret Thatcher, um, you know. And that, that it seemed to be The Crown season four existed to denigrate Margaret Thatcher. Uh, now, as, as Irish people, we have, um, let's just say, uh, um, mixed opinions uh, about Margaret Thatcher um, in many ways. But, you know, The Crown seemed to be, th that series seemed to be a setup to show, to, to make Margaret Thatcher as negative as possible. Uh, and, uh, and, and in fact, it seemed to go away from the royal family almost completely and, and have a go at her. And, you know, my, my, the biggest thing I noticed about The Crown was, you know, it opened with the murder of Lord Mountbatten uh, by the IRA in Ireland. And then you have Margaret Thatcher becoming prime minister. Now, the IRA almost wiped out Margaret Thatcher and the cabinet in the Brighton bombing, right? This is a bombing of a par at a part. It's like, it's like, somebody bombing uh, the Democratic National Convention Hotel where, where everyone is staying. Uh, it almost wiped out the upper echelons of the Conservative Party and the Cabinet. Now, the fact that they didn't include that, right, that, you know, Margaret Thatcher, at the start of it, Margaret Thatcher tells the Queen, I will hunt down these killers ruthlessly. Mm -hmm. And the Queen says nothing, which is very interesting. Does she approve of it? Does she not? And she did, Margaret Thatcher did hunt them down ruthlessly, let me tell you, uh, and kill them. Um, then you had four years later, Margaret Thatcher. She literally was in the bathroom of her hotel room, came out of the bathroom, and the and the whole hotel collapsed up to her bathroom door. Uh, she, if she had been in the bathroom, she would have been dead. So, the 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 you know they they didn't show that. And she and and I think dramatically the following day at the at the party conference she gave she, gave, she went ahead and gave her speech, which would have been actually from a character point of view would have been quite a telling thing about her as a character. My God, she nearly was killed. But also, can you imagine the, the phone calls between her and the Queen? with the Mountbatten history. Turns her into a sympathetic character because she's yeah. a target and they weren't going to do that. Well, no, they weren't going to do that. Exactly, exactly. They're very dishonest, very disappointing. Because um, as I said, I thought, I thought the earlier part of it was very well done. Uh, especially, actually, I thought they were quite sensitive about how they dealt with 
Um, so the, the religious aspect of her becoming queen, I thought that was actually very beautifully done, actually, that she... Uh, my favorite episode of that show, it's really one of my favorite episodes of any TV show, is, is the previous season of The Crown, where Prince Philip has a crisis of faith, her husband, and he searches for his faith, and he, he talks to this group of people. It's just one of the most beautiful hours of television I've ever seen. So yeah, to, to see it just flop this year yeah. into the stupid guy, and then they give you that stupid warning because we're going to watch Princess Diana fake throw up. I mean, we're freaking children now. You know, they kept on putting up on the screen, be careful, be careful, you're going to see somebody throw up, oh, fake throw up or whatever, pretend to have bulimia or whatever it's called. And at the same time, however, in The Crown, they show a 14-year-old boy being blown up on the boat outside Mullock Moor, where Mount ba on Mountbatten's boat. No warning, no warning to anyone. Oh, you're about to watch a child be blown to bits and that's well, no, we, no warning for that. I suppose there's no warning because the ch children of the aristocracy or people associated with aristocracy probably don't count, but pr Princess Diana yeah, somehow. You know, no one, there's no, you don't need a trigger warning for that. But these little college girls who have everything in the world and still won't eat, we got to worry about their feelings. And Phelan is, he needs help from you, John, here, because Phelan has been addicted to these procedurals. You know, these like CSI, Law and yeah, Order, yeah. No, no, the resident, all the hospitals. All, all the medical ones too, He loves right? the hospital right. ones. Right. But also, I used to love, I mean, but even but Law and Order, Special Victims, I can't watch it now. It became woke first, and it's just it's just unwatchable. But the one safe place, actually, was the medical procedurals. Because, you know, they would come in, and of course, very often, medical conditions are about your lifestyle and medical conditions or something that's hereditary but there was always there was never any wokeness and in fact something like house which uh, by the way was another great uh, series house right. i mean wow he didn't care he he would you know if he saw a stereotype that could possibly match your disease he would and they were the, the, and the young woke doctors would go you can't say that and he's going do you want me to cure him or do you want me to be sensitive to him and you know, <laughs> that's right great like, character so I, I like bad tv but this season bad tv has become totally unwatchable um i mean for example there was a, a scene and uh, uh, we talked about this last week in the resident the resident. The resident which is one of these you know procedurals you know you know there's three or four cases every week where the people come in and you always know that the hap the ma happily married couple who have been married for 50 years, one of them's going to die, but he's going to die with a smile on his face because he's beside his wife. But he'll, he's got some disease and they can't work out what it is. And I've never seen it before. And suddenly his, his finger starts moving like this and somebody works out, oh, that's due to the t tick he picked up in Connecticut, which mixed with the malaria he got when he was in the Korean War, means he's got this one in a million. And they all, oh, wow, yeah. And then the bleach that he used cleaning the house exacerbated it, and etc. Uh, that's the, always the way, and it's always good fun to watch them. Right, that's why you watch, right. Yeah, develop the characters that way. But So a woman came in with her daughter, and the daughter was sick, and suddenly the woman had a heart attack, and they couldn't, she's no history of heart disease, no, none of this, and then the daughter, and, and they said, well, has she had any strain on her heart recently? And the daughter says, well, we were at the George Floyd protest over the summer, and it was, it was started off peaceful, but they tear gassed us anyway, and she got all, and they went, well, tear gas could exacerbate a heart condition, it could cause oh a heart attack. Gosh. And it's like, but this is just, this is in all of them now. This is in all of them. Right. And every chance to show that every disease is a racist, is, has racist origins, or, or, or and, and I'm going like, Stop it. Like, I, I quite like the, uh, you know, the clue. Give us the clues about the person's lifestyle and then, uh, l l you know, have it worked out from there. Build the character that way. 
I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Because, I mean, the highest rated show on television right now is, is a Western called Yellowstone. It's on, it's on the Paramount channel. That gets more viewers than any other show. And I think it only has about 12, 13 million viewers. But these, the problem now is that television is so atomized that they don't need a lot of viewers to create a hit. So these shows, these garbage shows that do this can get away with it because if they can get four or five million people to watch, which is about 1% of the population, 2% of the population, that's enough. They can call it a hit and they can go on. So Hollywood is no longer, and this all goes back to cable, the, the fact that you know, you're paying $150 for your cable. You get 100 channels, you only watch three. Mm-hmm. But if, if, you know, if these networks are on your cable package, even if you don't watch them, part of your cable bill is going to fund them. It's one of the ways that CNN stays in business. They make $100 million a month just because they're on your cable package. You don't even have to watch it. So you're, you're subsidizing these networks and these networks then can do whatever the hell they want, including offend you and attack you because they don't need what they used to need. They don't need 10, 20 million people to make a hit. They just need four or 5 million and, 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 and that'll do it. So it's all rigged so that they can offend you and get away with it. There's nothing you can do about it because they don't need you to watch really. Yeah. What's the solution? I mean, what I just, I, I killed my cable five years ago. I just don't have cable anymore. I'm not going to pay for it anymore. I'm just tired of pumping garbage into my house. And I'm going to cancel Amazon when my subscription is up in April. Um, because I thought what they did to Parler, I'm not calling for a boycott. I don't believe in boycotts, but I just cannot in good conscience subsidize them anymore after they rip Parler off the, off the internet. It's just abominable behavior. And, you know, I don't have any problem with Netflix, really. And I don't have any problem with uh, HBO Max right now. And, but I also have a vast DVD collection. And I just watched, last night I watched three episodes of All in the Family, an episode of The Man from UNCLE, and two episodes of Taxi. And those shows are great. And they're still funny. And they're still relevant because they're based on the human condition. Mm-hmm. And I just watch what I want to watch. You're not going to be able to change Hollywood. You're not, nothing's going to, we've been trying to shame Hollywood for how long now? 12 years? Yeah, yeah. Big Hollywood? Nothing. They, 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 they just get worse. Yeah. So you have to build your own thing. When we first started off in this, at the same time as you guys, you know, there was definitely a sense that, that Hollywood, you could get your stuff into Hollywood. There was all these little ways that you could get stories in and films in and movies in and, you know, almost under the radar, sometimes above the radar. And then Hollywood was open to it. Now, it's not that they're open, not that they're closed to it. They get points for closing, for openly saying yeah. we're closing these people down and they're open about, you know, and if they don't, in fact, it's a negative. If they say we're not, we're letting these people in, they will get canned. They will get cancelled. It's the same with the media now. We, we spent a decade. I've been online now since 2004, you know, 17 years now, trying to shame the media into behaving itself, trying to shame Hollywood into saying, saying, hey, hey, look at this double standard. Look at, look at what you're doing here. Look at how you're hurting your bottom line. Or, or saying to them, what about, your own, what about your own opposition to blacklist? How can you make movie after movie about McCarthyism and then do this? And it just isn't going to work. You are not going to be able to change it. You have to build your own thing. And that's, that's really where people need to put their efforts towards now is building their own thing. If I was 25 instead of 55, that's what I would be doing. And you got to build 
you know, and I always hear the same thing. Well, you, what, what, I got to build my own internet. Well, someone built an internet. If someone built an internet, you can build the internet. Yeah. So you can, you can get your own servers. You can open your own banks. You can, someone built an Apple, build your own Apple. And that's what has to be done now because there's no way to change what's happening. We have to build our own thing. That's what the focus has to be. The complaining, the whining, it's pointing out hypocrisy. It's just, it's a total waste of effort. Why is it that conservatives uh, support the arts, you know, and donate to the arts and support art galleries and ballet and the theater? and the opera with huge, huge dollars, massive, massive donations to these arts that then go around and make art to destroy everything that they believe in. Why don't they invest? So why, why, why do conservatives not invest in entertainment? A lot of it is just the desire. There's just this desire that the left has captured these institutions and there is this unbelievably strong desire to be accepted. And that is, that, is just, that is just the way it is. And so people buy their way in and they just want to be part of that clique. They, you know, they want to be liked by CNN. They want, they want to be on CNN. And I've learned through my own experience that if, that if you're going to be on CNN, or you're going to be on Fox News, or you're going to be on MSNBC, you got to sell out a little bit. If you're going to be quoted by the Washington Post or the New York Times, you got to sell out a little bit. And it's, it is tempting. Um, but I, you know, luckily, whatever, there's just something in me that hates joining. And I've always had that. It's just genetics. So it's, it's never gotten me. But I see it happen all the time. And there is this desire. And it's, and it's pathetic. Plus, you know, we're, we have much thicker skins as conservatives. So we can love the arts. Because we, over the years, we've been trained to look past the, the, the indignities and enjoy good art. And the left can't do that. They're thin-skinned, they're babied their whole life. So the minute they see something that triggers them, they just freak out. Like what just happened to Gina Carano with, the, with Disney. You know, she didn't do anything wrong. And everybody just freaked out, they destroyed her career. But you and I, you know. Can you tell that story, what happened there? Well, she, she put up something on her, she's always been sort of a iconoclast on her Twitter feed where she's, she's very subtle and she has a good sense of humor about the woke left and these, these the, the new Hitler youth that are running Hollywood. She put something up that was perfectly appropriate. She did nothing wrong. She put something up about how uh, uh, the, the Nazis got Jewish, I'm sorry, the Nazis got German citizens to attack Jews physically and in every other way. And that way, when the, when, when the Nazis came to take away the Jews, they could get away with it because the Germans already, German citizens already hated the Jews and had already committed atrocities against them. And her point, and it was a perfectly valid point, is that when you dehumanize people, it can lead to terrible things. It's a perfectly valid point to make. She did nothing wrong. But, you know, everybody accused her of Holocaust denial or conflating the Holocaust with whatever. And now she's been fired. They fired her at Disney. They took her off the Mandalorian. And her her co-star, Pedro Pascal, who's a very good actor, by the way, but who's also a raging leftist, there's tweets all over the place where he compares, um, where he compares uh, Trump supporters to Hitler. Yeah. So he actually did what she's been falsely accused of doing, 
He's got his job. She's gone. Yeah. She's so, uh, oh, I just wanted to talk, John. You were, you, as usual, you're the, you were ahead of the pack. You left Los Angeles. You left California um, eight years ago. Um, you took that midnight train to North Carolina. Literally. Yeah. And uh, it looks like you're ahead of the pack. Everyone else is leaving, um, especially in the last year since, uh, the, since the shutdowns and the, 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 the BLM riots which both destroyed this city. Um, so how do you feel about that? Uh, was, it a, was it a mistake? I mean, you're are you all, feeling very smug, John? Or are you feeling, maybe I should have stayed on? I liked Los Angeles. I liked the people there a lot. I think Los Angeles is a, uh, a great example of how great this country is because you have people of every background, every culture living together in perfect harmony almost. I mean, yeah, they exacerbate the incident here and there, but really it is a great example of the melting pot at work. And in the neighborhood I lived in, I was, I was, I was the minority. I was in the 1%, it was only 1% or 3% white. The rest of it was Asian and, and Hispanic and my wife's Hispanic. So and it, was as, it was as American as any other place. So I love the people of Los Angeles, but the thing that got me to leave was number one, we owned a house back here in North Carolina and we were homesick the whole time. But the straw, the literal straw, I don't know if I guess I'm using the wrong, I'm using the word literal incorrectly there, but the straw that broke the camel's back was when they passed a law that said you had to pay five cents uh, if you use the plastic bags at the grocery store. And to me, it just told me that the government was out of control. I mean, if they're willing to do something that stupid and that intrusive, and they're trying that hard to control my behavior, and where the hell are their priorities? You know, they've got so many problems and they're worried about this, they're worried about plastic bags. And that was really, that was really the straw that broke the back. And we literally, this, I'm gonna use the word literal correct this time. We literally left at midnight. We took off about 10.30 and just got the hell out of there. And I remember we were at the first gas station um, and there was a woman there who was standing in line and, and she was telling, talking to her husband and she had a U-Haul truck like we did. And she just said, oh God, it feels so good to get the hell out of that place. And I don't know where they were headed. It sounds like the opening of a movie. Yeah, just escaped from California. Are they charging for plastic bags in North Carolina now? No, they're not. You don't have to recycle here. There's no stupid recycling, which is a total waste of time. It's none of that. We're free. We're pretty free out here. And one thing I would add is the first, almost the first thing to go uh, when, uh, when, almost the first thing to go when the pandemic came in was that they were they banned. Uh, the reusable bags. You weren't allowed to bring. You, you, you then had they. The first law they brought in was we have got to ban the reusable bags, and you have to use the plastic bags. Oh, because obviously the there's some kind of hygiene problem. Of course, <laughs> I mean, plastic. Those reusable bags are the perfectly refrigerated carrier of bacteria. That's right. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, they could not be better suited and throw in a bit of rotten meat and a rotten chicken. Oh, brilliant. You know. And then warm it up in the, in the California sun. Yes, in the, back I, of your, I, in the back of your car. That's uh, right, and yeah. expect. Yeah, and, and the people run around. Now you see it here. This is a pretty mixed community I live in here. It's a college town. You see people here with their, their bags and they're very smug about it. They're, they're, they look like homeless people's bags. They're disgusting. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think we're learning a lot of things that the left thought was a great idea. Um, come to haunt us during the pandemic, reusable bottles and, you know, air, you know, you can't open up windows anymore in these new buildings. Condo living too, this, this, I mean, they hit, the left hit the suburbs, but boy, there's been nowhere safer 
during this pandemic than a single family home in the suburbs, you know? Yeah, or the riots. Yeah, or the riots. So, you know, if you're stuck in your condo during a riot, as friends of ours were up in Hollywood, it's a very scary place to be. They're worried that they're going to set it on fire. Mm -hmm. You get what you vote for, that's what I say. We have two questions we ask everyone that comes on as a guest. And the first one is, do you cook, John? And if you cook, what is your go-to recipe that you're famous for in your house? I do cook. Um, I do cook quite a bit, but I only cook a few things because I'm not a very good cook. So I'm not famous for any kind of cooking. Um, but I make a really good hamburger. But I get, you know, I get the patties pre-made at Walmart and the big sleeve. But put some put some onions on there and some ketchup and there's toast up the buns. It's a pretty good hamburger. I like to grill too. Okay, what do you grill? Chicken, hamburger, nothing fancy. I'm very, I have a very simple diet, which makes my wife very happy. And then the other question, which I think you might be more expansive on, is what piece of art, a poem, a movie, maybe in your case a movie or a TV show or a piece of poetry, is a piece of art that has been perennially inspiring to you? Uh, it's been The Sopranos, which to me is just the pinnacle of art in every respect. Uh, it, it's just perfect. It's just a perfect television show. And I've sat through it now four or five times, and it's like a great novel, where every time you go back and read it, you see something new. It says something else to you. And uh, there's, it's just that show is just perfect to me. And if you want to know about theme, and exploring the human condition, condition and acting and writing and, of course, dialogue. I mean, that's, that's what you should strive for. You'll never hit it. At least I won't, speaking to myself. But it's just, it's just perfection. And then uh, something I've been reading of late is Norman Mailer's The Executioner's Song. It's a thousand-page book. It's, it, it's, it's listed as fiction, but it's really the true story about a man who, named Gary Gilmore who decided that uh, the, the, the state sentenced him to execution and he shocked everyone and said, okay, execute me. And then everybody freaked out over it. And it's, a, it's just a beautiful book. It's about a th it's, like I said, it's about a thousand pages. I've read it four or five times over the last year. And I like it because the language is so sparse. Mailer's language, and I don't really like Norman Mailer. It's the only thing he's ever written that I liked. The language is so sparse and it's such a fascinating investigation into characters, and these are real characters, um, just how complicated they are, and yet fast, it's, he, he's looking at normal people, everyday people, I should say, not normal people, everyday people, working class people, and you just see through this book how fascinating everyone is if you give them the time, how complicated, how, how flawed, but also how human they are if you just give them the time. It's just, it's just an exquisite work of art. Do you have a particular moment in The Sopranos that you think um, is one of the most, you know, a particular moment that you could share that people, to give people an understanding of how extraordinary a TV show it is? Yeah, there's this, there's this moment where uh, the, the gang, uh, Tony Soprano's guys get all freaked out because Indians are gonna protest the Christopher Columbus statue. And, and, and at first you're on their side. And then later in the show, Tony, who doesn't have very many smart moments in, in, in the show, he's not, he did not, not many insightful or intelligent moments, which is one of the great things about his character. He points out how his guys are acting no better than, than quote unquote, the gays and the blacks who complain about things when they should be working. 
And what I love about it is that you, you watch the show and you're with these guys the whole time. And then the show just pulls the rug out from under you and it says, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, these are things you complain about and now you're doing it. You're, you're, you're the one who's engaging in identity politics. Yeah. You're the one who's, in, who's involved in the narcissism of petty of petty. And that's art to me where you can, you don't feel manipulated and you don't feel uh, sucker punched but you just learn something and someone says, well, you got to look at it from this point of view. That, yeah. That's probably my, and the critics hate. That's, that's like one of the critics least favorite episode. Or, and I can tell why, because it attacks identity politics. I mean, I remember I th watching CNN once and they were, for some reason they were talking about the Sopranos and they were saying, well, of course, all conservatives hate the Sopranos, uh, you know, and, and I'm going, have they met a conservative? I mean, they, actually, they haven't met a conservative because I, so many conservatives I know love The Sopranos because it, it, it is ultimately a morality tale as well. It, it is. It's, it's, it's a total morality tale, and it's, it has a great message against consumerism. And that's not capitalism. It's a great message against consumerism about, about how people just cannot. We have everything. We have everything in this country. Everything. We have Keurigs and air conditioning and, and Blu-rays, but we're still not happy. And it's really about spiritual emptiness and losing your place with God and not being able to fill that God-shaped God hole, as they call it, and the emptiness of consumerism. It's about so many things, so many things. Yeah, it's, it's just a masterpiece. Thanks very much. Joe, how can people find you? Uh, obviously, Breitbart.com. I'm at, uh, at Nolte NC at n-o-l-t-e-n-c for north carolina i don't know how much longer they're gonna let me stay on there but that's where i am now well thank you so much john this has been great bye bye-bye that was great that was good well actually funny it just occurred to me actually now uh after that occurred to me after the interview uh i mean the crowd the people from the crown they missed a great dramatic moment by trying to denigrate thatcher so much uh, because because there is this scene and i noticed it uh when after my was murdered uh the, the Queen and, and Thatcher were on, the, on a call, and Thatcher said, we will hunt down these people ruthlessly and ex basically exterminate them. And the Queen said nothing. I thought, oh, that's interesting. The Queen has not said, oh, don't do that now. That would be, be illegal or whatever. And, but then I remembered, she, Thatcher didn't hunt down the IRA ruthlessly after that. It was only after the Brighton bombing, which I think was in 1983 or 85, that's when the shoot-to-kill policy came in. That's when unarmed people. So you're so in a way, it's kind of saying that it had to come home. It really had to come home to roost. So the chickens had to come home to roost. It had to come home to roost for the queen, and the queen still didn't say anything. But Thatcher, it really came home to roost in Brighton for her, and then only and, then did she. Go and for the you could have you could have Thatcher, uh, uh, the queen, and Thatcher, one of their uh, one of their weekly get confabs, saying the queen saying, "I'm hearing disturbing reports from Northern Ireland. You're you're assassinating people." And Maggie Thatcher would say, these are people, you know, whatever she would say, that who needed to be killed. Well, why didn't you do it when they assassinated my cousin? You know, why did it have to take it coming? You know, and that would have been, actually, and that would have been a fair, that's a fair enough argument. Plus, it would have been good drama. Yeah, and, and if you want to denigrate Thatcher, but see, to do that, you'd have to show the Brighton bombing and show her high up. You know, so it's, they, as, as we discussed with John, they, they sacrifice uh, great art and great drama for wokeness. Yeah, but so, anyway, we, and we, I feel, by the way, after listening to John and talking to John just now, I really feel like going back to The Sopranos because yeah. I do think we are we are in a, uh, a death cycle when it comes to entertainment yes, on the television totally. because of this wokeness. Um, so 
We're going to go now to our second interview today, which I think you guys, which we recorded earlier with Beth Stelzer. And this is really fascinating. And I think it's a thing where we're going to talk to Beth um, more than yes. m- more than totally. once, actually. Let's let's go over to that right now um, and hear that interview. We're very, very happy now to be joined by Beth Seltzer. She is a housewife and a mom and an amateur power lifter, which we're going to ask her about a bit in a minute. And she's from Minnesota. And two years ago, she founded an organization called Save Women's Sport to preserve biology-based eligibility standards for participation in female sports. First of all, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So tell us, what is what is Save Women's Sports? What are, what are you doing? What are you trying to do? We are a grassroots, nonpartisan coalition of athletes um, from amateur to professional, coaches, medical professionals, all in a place willing to speak up about this atrocity, this absurdity of males competing in female sports. Since I knew we were going to be talking to you, we've watched some videos very... I mean, absurd is a good word, actually, by the way, but very tragic also. Uh, videos of, there's, a, there's one particular video, we're going to show it to people now. So it's the one with, I think the athlete is called Cece. Um, it's a hurling, it's hurdling. Can you tell us about what we've just watched? So Cece is an athlete that participated as a male in college and then took a little bit of time off to quote transition and then started participating in the female. And we saw a huge difference in their performance from raking in the 200 and 300s as a male to now winning in women's NCAA championships and also getting like athlete of the week awards like that should be female titles and being championed as as stunning and brave and here our female athletes are basically bullied into silence by the cancel culture and I, and what i think you said or and, and i don't know much about her, but but these hurdles in fact if you're hurdling as a man the hurdles are actually higher there can be like 6 to 10 inches depending on like what league or wherever you are i can't remember offhand the exact i think it's at least 6 inches difference that then it's shorter for CC to compete as a woman. So of course it's a lot easier. I wanna go back a little bit here. So you also yourself are relatively new to sports. Is that correct? That you kind of, you came late to being an athlete. What, what happened? I didn't participate in sports a whole lot in high school or anything like that. I consider myself just a normal mom and housewife and kind of came across fitness in my thirties and fell in love with the barbell and so powerlifting became my thing and it ended up empowering me through some crazy stuff. I have some PTSD from abuse in the past that it helped me with and it's just an amazing thing. And so I'm, I don't have a sponsorship or a job that I risk losing by speaking up. So that's why I use my voice is for these young women and, and other athletes that can't. I have a friend who's a professional cyclist And she was literally told by their sponsor, if you don't stop speaking out about this, we won't sponsor your team. Not just her, her entire team, like 50 to $100,000 of gear. These people are just normal people who have a passion and they're paying for it on their own. And and they should get to compete however they feel. And if they don't want to compete against males, they should get to enter a female only competition. And that's why we're here. (laughs) So, So tell people, for people who don't know, what is the situation now? I mean, 
you know, up until recently, there were male sports and female sports. Uh, people tell people what what can happen now. What what could happen? What is happening now? This play on on words, this conflation of sex, the biological reality with gender identity, which is self-identifying, and so. When we're allowing in all these sports organizations, even the Olympics now, to allow males to compete in the female category, the Olympics doesn't even require surgery for these athletes, merely lowering testosterone levels. And nothing like that can mitigate the very real differences between males and females. And then often left out of this debate is not only just fairness, but bodily privacy. There are women that rely on these sex-separated spaces. I know from suffering from abuse, I like to have my female-only locker room. I would not like to share it with a man. And I'm not saying that anyone who identifies as being transgender is a threat, but it socializes women to accept those male bodies in their spaces when they shouldn't have to. And it can be a real threat and very fearful for a young woman who suffered from abuse to have to deal with that fear. They, they essentially cannot join sports, eventually can't go to the bathroom outside of home. It's so, basically so, what the trans people are saying against us. People can self-identify into all sports at all levels. That's what I wanted to check. So, so if tomorrow, if I self-identify as a woman, in some sports, I can just go and, and take part Turn up. tomorrow. Now, you're saying for the Olympics, I have to right. lower my testosterone. Right. In my state of Minnesota, for example, the high school athletes, they merely need to just self-identify, like a note from mom or dad in their boom, on the girls' team, in the girls' locker room, etc. However, there are private organizations such as USA Powerlifting here, in, and they have branches such as here in Minnesota, that have chosen to protect female athletes and now they're under threat for that facing lawsuits because a male wasn't allowed to compete in the female championships and i was there the day that that male decided to protest and ruin the event for all women i carved out time for well over two years to get the courage to get to that day and they did not once think of my feelings was that the day that this, this, where this whole thing started with you, where you went to compete in a competition and the whole thing was ruined and yes. people had come from all over the place to compete and the trans activists destroyed the event, am I right? It was an organized protest for their, their supposed rights and for a class of people that insists that we bow down to their feelings, I asked them, what about mine? What, if they truly care about women, they should see that this this just shouldn't be. And yeah, they ruined the entire event for many women. And not just women, the spectators, everyone. We're just gonna show a tiny clip of that right now. What were they chanting? Share the platform. The platform is the spot that, that we lift on. So during the day, a bunch of the lifters that signed up to lift used their minute that they were supposed to participate to chant like that. So as you're getting ready to go in the background, getting geared up, and you think you're about ready to lift, and oh, nope, it's another protester. And it was just horrible. Protesting is a very, or powerlifting is a very small community. And so I was expecting this, like my big break into the family, and it was just chaos. You know, 
but another point, when you were talking about high school students, and I think it's something that I've read um, when I was reading about you, I think it was, um, it's a very interesting, another interesting problem. So we have young people, high schoolers, for example, going to sporting events where they're traveling and often staying, for example, in like a dorm situation. You're in a dorm situation now with boys, right? With biological boys. And That's it's against I, the law for anyone to point out that they are a boy. And talking of the law, you wrote very interestingly recently, you said, you wrote an essay where you said on his first day of his presidency, President Biden bid farewell to fairness in women's and girls' sport. His executive order entitled Preventing and Combating Discrimination on the Basis of Gender, Identity and Sexual Orientation fundamentally changes the definition of woman. Can you tell, tell, us, tell us more about this executive order that President Biden brought in? What does it mean? Uh, and what, how was President Trump on this issue? They're kind of on polar opposites. It's sad this has kind of been a partisan issue. But in a nutshell, what Biden did was replace the word sex, so which has boundaries, man and woman, XXXY chromosomes, and, and snuck in sexual orientation and gender identity, which those two shouldn't be conflated either, but especially sex with the gender identity. When you say someone can self-identify, that takes away the boundaries and they can then jump into whatever category they want. So essentially, Biden took away Title IX and any other right that women had to sex-separated spaces. Now anyone is allowed to self-identify. And if you say other, you're discriminating and you're the bigot. Young women are not going to take part in sports now because they cannot win. There are a lot of young women already saying, what's the point in starting if I know I have to race against that boy tomorrow? Or for example, a lot of our young women experience sexual assault. It's a reality. A lot of them don't want to speak up. And would you want to go to the locker room? in fear that there might be a male body in there if you've experienced sexual assault or want to play on the field, close contact with the male body. I know from having PTSD, it can be horrid. And it shouldn't be up to these young women to have to speak up. It shouldn't rest on their shoulders like we're seeing in Connecticut with the lawsuits with these brave young women. Those are the brave and courageous young women. Did the Trump administration have a different approach to this issue than the Biden administration? Before the Trump administration left the office, his um, Secretary of Education reiterated that Title IX meant on the basis of sex, that our opportunities should be separated on the basis of biological sex, not gender identity. And we've had other cases that went through that were about employment and whatnot, like Bostock, Title VII. And this specifically said that that does not play into this. Title IX should be just sex. But now what Biden has done is put gender identity into that. So it means nothing. What's the plan? What are you guys going to do? What can, I, I think for people listening today, I think maybe, maybe my question is, what can a young girl do? What can women do? What can parents do? Um, a lot of parents would, and grandparents, what do they do? To, to help their women and, and girls in their lives uh, compete in sports? What can they do? This is gonna be fought at the grassroots level. We need to just start having those conversations that can be really tough with your friends, your neighbors, your family. It needs to start out with people talking to their coaches, 
Do not be afraid to tell the truth and let this ideology bully you into silence because we are the majority. We just need to speak up and courage calls the courage. And that's why I'm using my voice. I'm just an average person. I didn't set out to be an activist, but I know what's at stake. And I know that women fought really hard for these rights that we've had in the United States with Title IX for not even 50 years. So these girls don't know what it's like to not have opportunities we can't just go handing them away. When it comes home to people, you know, and this is not a political issue, this should not be a political issue. This is your child. Or religious. Yeah, or religious, or any of that. It's this common about, sense. And, and human rights, by the way, and also human rights. You know, there you are, a girl, you're very athletic. I remember years and years ago, I interviewed Nadia Comaneci, the amazing gymnast. Um, Perfect the perfect 10 woman you know and you think about you know that she was just that she had that natural athleticism as a girl as a young child and her mother I mean she told me the whole story and you think about how the world you know how, the, how different the world would be if she had been suddenly forced into a situation where she was competing with boys who are obviously stronger you know and I mean that you know you talk about those those differences where there's you know the body density and stuff like that one other question I had for you was uh, in terms of the Olympics, there was something, tell me again about the testosterone, because I think it's good for people to understand this. Um, tell us about those numbers. I read something about these. What the Olympics has done is basically set up an obligatory guideline of a level of testosterone that these male athletes need to be at for 12 months or more before they can compete as a woman. And now this level of testosterone is still three times or more higher than the high level of what a woman would normally run. So tell me that that mitigates those differences. And even if it does, they still have a male body. It's still women here saying no. Why aren't you listening to us? I mean, it's amazing. So, so this is the Olympics actually encouraging doping. And and I'll also note that these testosterone levels, these athletes can often report to the lab of their choice and they know when they're getting tested. It's not like random doping tested. They can, they can easily manipulate these results. So this middle ground of testosterone level, this, this just doesn't work. And as an organization, Save Women Sports will not compromise. Males should not compete in female sports. There's nothing, there's no middle ground. This is, I mean, this is incredible stuff. I really hope we can get to talk to you another time as well. For right now, where do people come to find you to come and ask for help, to, to give you help? Where, where are you? Where can we find you on the, on the net? Savewomensports.com. Yeah. And then you can find us, Save Women Sport, on all social media. Um, info at savewomensports.com if you want to shoot us an email and really start getting involved or else just if you're anywhere get in touch with representatives coaches your friends family let your voice be heard because it matters well yes. we're, we're, and we are so grateful to you for what you've done I, I followed everything today on twitter and all those places so savewomensports.com we got to testify in a state today so i'm glad you got to follow along with that thank you again for the opportunity thanks, thanks so much we appreciate you bye bye-bye yeah, I th so I think we'll, we're going to have to, you know, keep up with Beth. I think over the next um, months, things are going to develop and change. And obviously, it's interesting that she talked about, I think she didn't say the name, but she talked about the education, the person who was the head of the Department of Education. Obviously, that was yeah. Betsy DeVos. So Betsy DeVos 
did good things in, under the Trump administration to protect girls and women and girls and women's sport. Um, and that has all been overturned by Joe Biden, who did an executive order. Yes. I mean, it was so important to him yeah. to have trans athletes um, competing who are, you know. These are not trans fit, athletes. No, so these are, these are these men. Are cheating men. These are cheating men competing against girls. And it's, it's just, it's horrific. But we're not going to let that story go. We're yes. going to be following that story. Um, and now we're going to go to the recipe of the day. The of recipe the week. of the day. I said I did that in a French accent because because Phelan associates French with good food. So did my father. After a week in Lourdes, that'll do it for you. <laughs> That's right. We came back. How was Lourdes? The first time he was ever abroad. Oh. And uh, it was in the seventies. I said, "How was Lourdes?" Food was amazing. He couldn't stop talking about the food. Oh, he thought the French really knew how to do with their food. And you know, uh, the French, it's all about butter, uh, by the way. And I was sort of thinking, listen to my father, going, yeah, you know, the, the, butter they have cream. a reputation. Yeah, well, anyway, so that was his thing. That was very, his take on from the Lourdes. Okay. Okay, so um, let's, let's go to the recipe now. Yeah. So we have a recipe for this week, which we, we think is very fabulous. Indeed. And still cooking in the oven. We approve we, this message. We approve this message. And this is meatloaf. And by the way, there's a doubt a million thousand ways of making meatloaf. Meatloaf is kind of an American thing, is it? Yes, and it's, a, it's supposed to be a permanent food. I, actually, talking about meatloaf, it reminds me of Orson Bean. Why? Go on. On their first date, uh, the thing that she really admired about him was that he had the courage to order meatloaf. Oh, really? And then on their we- for their wedding, they had meatloaf at their wedding. Oh my God, that's amazing. Okay, well, let it, you, we're going to start watching uh, how I prepared this. And if you start, I started out there, you can see me with the, um, with some... Uh, garlic. Making, making some garlic. And by the way, that new device for squash and garlic, I think is really great. I think you technically crush garlic. There you go, like crushing my, like garlic. My dreams. So what you do is you're going to crush some garlic, you're going to chop up some onions very finely, and then you're going to start, the very first thing to do basically is going to be to... Um, fry off the garlic with some onions with some thyme just about an eighth of a spoon of thyme you see me adding it there and if you you know cook that down a little bit those aromatics are going to be they're going to be way more better than if you put them in way more better do you see me doing that a lot better this is pork pork 10 ounces of pork I have here 20 ounces of bison this is bison very very lean and then to that we're going to mix this collection here that we did earlier which is cooled down now that can go in there so you're going to put in the parsley flatly beautiful par- flatly parsley we don't mm-hmm. have the curly parsley i prefer the curly parsley by the way okay there's the eggs there's the eggs breaking the two eggs in there into this big bowl i love this big bowl it's great for when you have loads and loads of stuff like this and What's there's sun-dried tomatoes delicious sun-dried tomatoes which i've chopped up very small mm-hmm. i love them and i have a huge huge jar of them from costco that's been gone to go for years and then we have breadcrumbs Yummy, yummy, yummy. Loads of breadcrumbs. Did you make those yourself? Or I made them in the whizzer, whatever they call it, the blender. Very mm-hmm. good place. And then gorgeous parmesan, which I also used the blender to make, which I think is the right. reason that I broke the blender, actually. Mm-hmm. So that's all gone in there. Really nice. Next, we're going to do, this is carrot. This has not been previously cooked. So that's, that's you know, carrot. that's all carrot that I've, I've, I've grated. Yellow that. carrot. Yellow carrot that oh, was right. grated. Oh, yeah, yellow carrot. Oh, yeah, very sophisticated. Do you know that's, why carrots are orange? I got that in Trader Joe's. I don't know why they're yet. To honour King William of Orange. And now Worcestershire sauce, which can be pronounced Worcestershire sauce. Oh, oh and there's a cat in the background. I see yes. that. So there, there's the Worcestershire sauce going in. You know, and about, I would say about a tablespoon of that is enough. And then pepper, loads of pepper. And you can decide how much Worcestershire sauce. We love it. So I put in quite a bit. Loads of pepper. As you can see, I love pepper. And then salt, 
kosher salt, of course, because we're in Los Angeles. You know, that's the way it is. And mm-hmm. it's more pure. And next thing, which is great, because we had a pandemic, we have these fabulous things. So we have these gloves, right, that you can wear now, which I only reason I have them is because of the pandemic. And then I realized another great thing about Excellent. them. And you know what's great about them is you don't lose your, your engagement ring. Because too many times I've taken my engagement ring off. And the next thing that happens is no idea where the engagement ring is because I was making meatballs or making meatloaf. Yeah. Then you so there you mix it up like that. So just to talk about this, I can see the carrots. Yes, so carrots were, car- all carrots were purple until William of Orange, they genetically modified carrots to honor the king. Uh, and that's and you know what the, what's, what's, what's the normal uh, color should be? What I think it's purple normally. Oh, normal color. So you see the way I'm doing that? Also, by the way, don't do it. Uh, do it as loosely as you can. You don't want to compound anything, but you just want to mix everything. But you do in. want to mix. You do want to mix. You look like you're really mixing there, I have to say. That's very good. I'm happy to hear that. It's a mixer. So then what we're going to do is, you'll see that on the right beside that, I have um, a a cooking sheet and it's covered in parchment paper. And this is where we're going to put all of this. We're not going to bother using a loaf tin. We're actually going to allow all of the the fat, if you like, to to drain away. So put it on on the... And so we're going to put it over there. Look at that. There we go. And we're just going to form it loosely into kind of a loaf a loaf shape in the middle there um, again don't you know don't press it down too much nice and light and really nice light yeah. light touch there and why don't you press down because it won't cook properly if it's too firm well, it's too people thick. actually don't like it when it's too compounded i think it kind of yeah. ruins it and you want room for everything Air to, to, to get at everything and everything to get cooked because nice. it does look well so then I suppose there's plenty of fat and oil and, and meat there in is. It. and then you could if you want just immediately now on top of this right now put a glaze on top of it but you know what we're going to do we are not going to do that but because this house loves bacon more than almost anything we really love bacon so what we're going to do is we are going to wrap this in bacon and the bacon i have which is from costco is it's not the best and you see the way it's fall it fell to pieces but anyway we're going to make an effort to kind of try and cover this uh, in as artfully a best uh, form as possible are you laughing already film at the yes. fact that there's no art involved in how i did this Look at the wee strips like that there are. So it was this meatloaf. Yes. Yeah. But th- the thing that's going to happen here is it's all about flavour. It's all about yes. layers and layers and layers and layers of Of course, flavor. your meatballs are quite famous. Uh, during the Gosnell uh, fundraising campaign, uh, we offered people uh, one of your meatballs. Uh, meat, no, meat meatloaf, that's right. Delivered uh, anywhere in America, anywhere in the world, actually. And a lot of people did a go for the meatloaf. How many people, Mag, did you think got a meatloaf was during the Gosnell campaign? Eight or ten, was it? A lot of people, and by the way, one of them, by the way, was um, Mike Gallagher, who on his radio show looked through the rewards for the Gosnell film and said, oh my God, meatloaf, I'll buy a meatloaf. By the way, how much was the meatloaf for the Gosnell campaign? I know the answer. Not $1,000. Not not $2,000, but $3,000. And lots and lots of people did that. And by the way, during the Obamagate um, project, I think we also did one of my meatloafs was sent out. World famous meatloafs. World famous meatloafs. And the next thing that we're going to do immediately after that is we're going to make a glaze for this. And the glaze I'm making here is with barbecue sauce. And it's, this is, I quite like this barbecue sauce. It's um, a Jack Daniels barbecue sauce. Um, I'm sure it's really, really healthy. And because I had a lot of meat, I had basically two pounds of meat. I put in a half cup there of that barbecue sauce with, and then you'll see the other ingredients, just three ingredients, basically. I th- oh no, four ingredients, actually. Lots of ingredients in this. Bit of honey, mm-hmm. bit of honey, two tablespoons, basically, of honey. There we go. And then we're also going to add into this apple cider vinegar, about two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar, and also this chipotle jam that I found in the kitchen. It's one of those things I've had for ages and didn't know how to use it. Where do you think you got it? I don't know where I got it, but I really like it actually. And it's just a little bit spicy, little sweet spicy. You're going to allow your meatloaf to cook Mm -hmm. for about 30 minutes. Take it out of the oven and you'll spread this 
glaze on. And how would you Once spread it with a, with a brush? You're going to just paint that on. You're going to paint on the, the glaze on, yes. top of the, yeah. on top of the thing. That's great. And put That's it back good. in the oven. Good. Yeah. And then, um, then it comes back out of the oven when it's done. And I think the basic verdict from everyone here was that it was absolutely yummy. So that's it. All this recipe will be posted on the website. Uh, on reporterstoriesociety.com. You can see the pictures of this if you watch it on YouTube. If you're listening, it is delicious. It looks delicious. And happy eating. And happy eating. So we've come to the end of our show. And by the way, can I just say, how much did you like the meatloaf film? Delicious. Very delicious. Very yeah. delicious. Mm. And can I just mention one thing about the meatloaf? Um, it, yeah, it took about an hour. It actually took quite a while to cook. And always be careful because of pork. So you want to test that with a thermometer. Yes, yes. So, so we've come to the end of the show. There's a cat coming a lot yes. right there. Um, Don't knock over the camera top. And by the way, just one thing that we wanted to mention, um, you know, in this week's show, Magda went for the weekend, for this weekend pass to yes. Austin, Texas with some friends. Um, Magda got out on what day film? On Sunday, I think it was. Yes. But her friends, as we go to record this, are still stuck in Austin, Texas, in a hotel with no electricity, no food, the water has been turned off and their child, who is three, is wearing three coats and they're yes. eating potato crisps. Well, and uh, that's because there's no electricity in the water. Yes. Uh, why is there no electricity uh, well, in, in Texas, Anne? In that, uh, by, you know, by the way, this is, this is, this, tell us why there's no electricity. So here's the New York Times explaining it. The storm is taking, a so obviously everyone knows it's a massive winter storm. The storm is taking a heavy toll on electric services in Texas. An estimated 2.6 million homes and businesses in the state had their power interrupted. This is a Monday's... Uh, uh, Sunday night and Monday morning. But it's going to go on for a week. Oh yeah, yeah exactly. Part of the problem, but it, you like this or you mightn't, you know. Part of the problem arose when wind turbines in West Texas became frozen. Roughly half the state's wind generating capacity was knocked offline, shutting off as much as 10,500 megawatts of wind power, a significant chunk of the state's total electricity supply. Authorities were expected to de-ice the turbines throughout the day. Monday's wind power loss alone affected 2 million customers. Can I just ask a simple question? You can, Phil. Why it's your show. is Texas... Why has Texas a significant chunk, as, as to say, of the state's electri total electricity supply from wind turbines? I know. Because all the cool dudes in Austin, Texas, thinks it's really nice to get their power from renewables, as they call them. Yeah, but who's, who's in charge here? You know, okay, all the kids might want the cool toys, but the adults actually have to say... You have to, you know, yeah. this is what works. Yeah, and while, and what's really interesting, and by the way, I'm just going to put up this quick tweet that we saw online, which I thought was very funny. You know, a, a guy has a great photograph there because now these wind turbines. Luke Legate. but uh, and everyone's loved his, his tweet, and I think he's in the oil and gas business. But basically, these wind turbines, when they freeze, as you can imagine, the, each, each of the, um, you know, the, the what's they call those film, like those huge, huge um, pedals, the pedals that come out from the, I become frozen. The word. And basically, you know, there's these huge, massive icicles, the size of a boat, basically. And when you think of, the t of most of these turbines, the ends of them, when they are working, are going at around 180 miles an hour. This is a dangerous weapon. So they had, they're, they're frozen solid. And how they're defrosting them, basically, is using helicopters. And Mr. Legato, I, we love him. A helicopter running on fossil fuel, spraying a chemical made from fossil fuels onto a wind turbine made with fossil fuels. 
during during an ice storm is awesome. So just to let you know, all those people who are leaving California and moving to Texas because California's gone crazy, you're moving to a state that is heavily dependent upon wind, that is has more oil than Saudi Arabia and more gas than probably a lot of places, natural gas, uh, but has somehow managed, because that's the cool thing to do, to be dependent on a technology that is a thousand years old, two thousand years old. And the last thing we're going to do here is put up another slide. Just have a look at this. We think that this is really instructive. This is the month of the last month. So the month leading up to this disaster that's happened in Texas. And this is the use of electricity. You can see it. And this is from what they call the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCO. So if you look at the beginning of the month, if you look at January, go back to the beginning of that, the green part of the graph is showing the use of wind energy. The kind of mauve brown, pale brown beneath that is, gen is gas. Uh, natural gas. Beneath that again, the brown is coal and beneath that again is, is, is nuclear. So what's really interesting, all rocking along fine, right? And you can see ups and downs and whatever, given how much wind well, but is available. But you come to the end when this emergency happened, right? When this emergency happened, look at natural gas coming in there to save the day. Huge capacity boost there from the natural gas. Below that, beneath that, look at the rock star of coal remaining steady as you go, yeah, really yeah. power, powerful and steady. And beneath that again, you have the nuclear. If you look at that chart, it's a brilliant chart, and we'll put that up on everywhere on our social media. Uh, but why? But I think why? what's really what no, what I also think was really interesting is if you see because I mean you look at that and you think that why have they got a problem? The problem is right now in Texas they need more energy than they normally need because there is this massive, massive storm and it's really cold. So people need more energy. They haven't got the capacity because they've spent their energy and their time and, and their money. And set the grid up. And set the grid up to make themselves dependent on wind. And when it comes, push comes to shove in a drama. Wind is maybe renewable, but it's an unreliable as well. Super, super unreliable. And so we have a friend, a three-year-old, who is freezing in Austin in a hotel three, with no electricity. And no water. And no water, eating potato chips. Um, Wearing three coats. In, in, in Texas, in the 21st century, it's, a, it's appalling. Yes. And it's horrible. And we're scared. And we don't know what to do. And we have lovely friends in Texas, but people can't get their cars out. It's just extraordinary. And this is all because of feel-good, idiotic, in renewable Texas. energy nonsense and happening in Texas. Shame on you, the whole lot of you. Um, and that's the end of our show. Uh, love you all. Thanks a million for all the nice um, you can, things you don't said. Don't forget, if you want to uh, donate and, and help the show go on, go to the unreported storiesociety.com. You're pointing at me to do something. Now? I was going to say to you that lovely people who wrote such nice things on our last podcast, including one lady who wrote a very long description of and I don't mean that the way it sounds, but a really great description of herself being in Washington, D.C. Yeah. during the summer riots yes. when she was terrified for her safety and when there was criminality in her neighborhood. So, yeah, her name is Lisa, Elisa Angle, and uh, she was in D.C., as she says, for the, the BLM Antifa rioting. You know, she, she couldn't buy milk in her convenience stores. Yeah. They were cleaning up broken glass. You know, stores were looted, you know. I didn't go into the street the night of the looting because there was a curfew and I could see the crime happening on the street outside my uh, window. And then she talks about January the 6th. She felt safe outside, yeah. you know? She was able to walk around. There was a sea of humanity. But what did the Trump supporters get? They get, they get called terrorists and, and the BLM people, they get that street named after themselves. The street where they burned, try to burn down a church. 
Excuse me. So that is the way it is. Uh, by the way, did you see the thing about the, the police officer allegedly killed by the, the, the pro-Trump mob? The fire extinguishers reported by... Uh, and by, the, I saw by the, the New York Times. But everywhere else. And I saw that. And I, it reminded me of Northern Ireland where, where the state would try and get propaganda out first. And it's a very effective thing. Say, oh, that guy, he opened fire first when we reluctantly had to kill. And, you know, six months later or six years later at an inquest, it'll be revealed actually the gun, his gun was on fire. But the story is out there, has traveled many times around the world. There was a gun battle, and it's the same with this police officer. He was attacked by a pro-Trump mob. Apparently. Uh, then they try to say, well, when there was no fire extinguisher, it was, it was bear spray, and now they're saying nothing. And uh, so basically... Uh, five people died uh, that day. Three died of heart attacks and strokes. They were Trump supporters. Uh, one police officer died, looks like, of natural causes also. And one person was shot by a member of the Capitol Police in the neck through a door. Yeah, so, a, lady, a lady from, from San Diego. Yeah. So um, quite, a, you know, quite an insurrection there when, when the only people who were killed uh, were the insurrectionists and, and no, no police officer was, was, was killed. I mean, they had the police officer lying in state. Oh, God, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Kelly Hansen. She laughed so hard, by the way, at the story of you abandoning me. You abandoned There's another the YouTube commenter. Yes, another YouTube. By the way, just love all the comments. And by the way, April, May, th April, May, June, cool show. Thank you very much. So we love, we love all these um, comments. Please keep giving them on YouTube and on the podcast. Yeah, app. we really love them and we really need them. Oh, and so. someone, is, someone is criticizing me there. Soccer Mom 1245. So uh, remember we did the chicken story about yes and mercy of chicken or chicken of mercy said oh they're living on their own feces and I'm going they wouldn't be living on their own feces she believes that living on their own feces means standing in their own feces actually living I in thought, mm, I thought I thought the story said that they were eating their own living in their own. yeah well, let's go back we will we will fact check this we will find it out uh, but it's great please keep leaving comments we, we, we love, love them, them. And, we do uh, love them and i see vocal pelican there great recipe recipe tips and tricks Thank she you. never thought about throwing out not throwing out the cheese rind you'll, love, that you'll all. always do that it's so really great listen we got on reporterstorysociety.com please go there give what you can leave a comment thank you very much bye. thank you bye